0: Section twenty one Europe and the Faith. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Europe and the Faith by Hilaire Belloc. Section twenty one. Chapter five continued. I have devoted so much space to this one writer, whose record would hardly count in a time where any sufficient historical document existed, because his book is absolutely the only one contemporary piece of evidence we have upon the pirate or Saxon rating of Britain. Footnote. The single sentence in Prosper is insignificant, and what is more demonstrably false as it stands. There are interesting fragments about it in the various documents known to us collectively today as the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, but these documents were compiled many hundreds of years afterwards, and had nothing better to go on than St. Gildas himself, and possibly a few vague legends. Now, we happen to have in this connection a document which, though not contemporary, must be considered as evidence of a kind. It is sober and full written by one of the really great men of Catholic and European civilization, written in a spirit of wide judgment, and written by a founder of history, the Venerable Beattie. True, the Venerable Beattie's ecclesiastical history was not produced until 300 years after the first raids of these predatory bands, not until nearly 200 years after St. Gildas, and not until 140 years after reading and writing and the full tide of Roman civilization had come back to eastern Britain with St. Augustine. But certain fundamental statements of his are evidence. Thus the fact that the venerable Beattie takes for granted permanent pirate settlements, established as regular, if small, states, all the way along the North Sea coast, from the northern part of Britain, in which he wrote, brought down to the central south by Southampton Water, is a powerful, or a rather conclusive argument in favor of the existence of such states some time before he wrote. It is not credible that a man of this weight would write as he does without solid tradition behind him. And he tells us that the settlers on this coast of Britain came from three lowland Frisian tribes, German and Danish, called Saxons, Jutes, and Angles. The first name Saxon was at that time the name of certain pirates inhabiting two or three small islands on the coasts between the Elbe and the Rhone. Footnote: The name has retained a vague significance for centuries, and is now attached to a population largely Slavonic and wholly Protestant, south of Berlin, hundreds of miles from its original seat. Ptolemy puts these Saxons two hundred years earlier just beyond the mouth of Elbe. The Romans knew them as scattered pirates in the North Sea, irritating the coast of Gaul and Britain for generations. The name later spread to a large island confederation, but that was the way with German tribal names. The German tribal names do not stand for fixed races or even provinces, but for chance agglomerations which suddenly rise and as suddenly disappear. The local term Saxon in the 5th and 6th century had nothing to do with the general term Saxon applied to all northwest of the Germanies two hundred years and more afterwards. These pirates, then, provided small bands of fighting men under chieftains who founded small organized governments north of the Thames estuary at the head of Southampton Water and on the Sussex coast, when they may or may not have found, but more probably did find, existing settlements of their own people already established as colonies by the Romans. The chiefs very probably captured the Roman fiscal organization of the place, but seemed rapidly to have degraded society by their barbaric incompetence. They learned no new language, but continued to talk that of their original seat on the continent, which language was split up into a number of local dialects, each of which was a mixture of original German, and adopted greek latin and even celtic words of the jutes we know nothing there is a mass of modern guesswork about them valueless like all such stuff we must presume that they were an insignificant little tribe who sent out a few mercenaries for hire but they had the advantage of sending out the first for the handful of mercenaries whom the roman british called into kent were by all tradition Jutish. The venerable Beattie also bears witness to an isolated Jutish settlement in the Meon Valley near Southampton water, comparable to the little German colonies established by the Romans at Bayeux in Normandy and near Rennes. The Angles were something more definite. They held that corner of land where the neck of Denmark joins the mainland of Germany. This we know for certain. There was a considerable immigration of them, enough to make their departure noticeable in the sparsely populated heaths of their district, and to make Beattie record the traveller's tale that their barren country still looked depopulated. How many boatloads of them, however, may have come? We have, of course, no sort of record. We only know from our common sense that the number must have been insignificant compared with the local free and slave population of a rich Roman province. Their chiefs got hold of the land far above the Thames estuary in scattered spots all up the east coast of Britain, as far as the Firth of Forth. There are no other authorities. There is no other evidence save St. Gildas, a contemporary, and two hundred years after him, three hundred after the first event. Beattie. A mass of legend and worse nonsense called the historia britonum exists indeed for those who consult it but it has no relation to historical science nor any claim to rank as evidence as we have it it is centuries late and it need not concern serious history even for the existence of arthur to which it is the principal witness popular legend is a much better guide as to the original dates of the various statements in the Historia Brittonum, those dates are guesswork. The legendary narrative as a whole, though very ancient in its roots, dates only from a period subsequent to Charlemagne, much more than a century later than Beattie, and a time far less cultured. The life of St. Germanus, who came and preached in Britain after the Roman legions had left, is contemporary and deals with events sixty years before St. Gilda's birth. It would be valuable if it told us anything about the pirate settlements on the coast, whether these were but the confirmation of older Roman Saxon garrisons, or Roman agricultural colonies, or what. But it tells us nothing about them. We know that St. Germanus dealt in a military capacity with Picts and Scots, an ordinary barbarian trouble but we have no hint at Saxon settlements. St. Germanus was last in Britain in 447, and it is good negative evidence that we hear nothing during that visit of any real trouble from the Saxon pirates who, at that very time, might be imagined, if legend were to be trusted, to be establishing their power in Kent. That ends the list of witnesses. That is all our evidence. Footnote. On such a body of evidence, less than a morning's reading, did Green build up for popular sale his romantic Making of England. To sum up, so far as recorded history is concerned, all we know is this that probably some, but certainly only a few, of the Roman regular forces were to be found garrisoned in Britain after the year 410, that in the Roman armies there had long been Saxon and other German auxiliaries some of whom could naturally provide civilian groups and that rome even planted agricultural colonies of auxiliaries permanently within the empire that the south and east coasts were known as the saxon shore even during imperial times that the savages from scotland and ireland disturbed the civilized province cruelly that scattered pirates who had troubled the southern and eastern coasts for two centuries joined the scotch and irish ravaging bands that some of these were taken in as regular auxiliaries on the old roman model somewhere about the middle of the fifth century the conventional date is 445 that has happened in many another roman province the auxiliaries mutinied for pay and did a good deal of bad looting and ravaging finally that the ravaging was checked and that the pirates were thrown back upon some permanent settlements of theirs established during these disturbances along the easternmost and southernmost coasts their numbers must have been very small compared with the original population no town of any size was destroyed now it is most important in the face of such a paucity of information to seize three points first that the ravaging was not appreciably worse either in the way it is described or by any other criterion than the troubles which the continent suffered at the same time, and which, as we know, did not there destroy the continuity or unity of civilization. Secondly, that the sparse raiders, pagan, as were also some few of those on the continent, and incapable of civilized effort, obtained as they did upon the continent, notably upon the left bank of the Rhine, little plots of territory which they held and governed for themselves, and in which, after a short period, the old Roman order decayed in the incapable hands of the newcomers. But thirdly, and upon all this the rest will turn, the position which these less civilized and pagan small courts happened permanently to hold were positions that cut the link between the Roman province of Britain and the rest of what had been the United Roman Empire. This last matter, not numbers, not race, is the capital point in the story of Britain between 447 and 597. The uncivilized man happened by a geographical accident to have cut the communications of the island with its sister provinces of the empire. He was numerically as insignificant, racially as unproductive, and as ill-provided with fruitful or permanent institutions as his brethren on the Rhine or the Danube but on the Rhine and the Danube, the empire was broad. If a narrow fringe of it was ruined, it was no great matter, only a retreat of a few miles. Those sea communications between Britain and Europe were narrow, and the barbarian had been established across them. The circulation of men, goods, and ideas was stopped for 150 years, because the small pirate settlements, mixed perhaps with barbarian settlements already established by the empire had by the gradual breakdown of the roman ports destroyed communication with europe from southampton water right north to beyond the thames it seems certain that even the great town of london whatever its commercial relations kept up no official or political business beyond the sea the pirates had not gone far inland but with no intention of conquest only of loot or continued establishment, they had snapped the bond by which Britain lived. Such is the direct evidence, and such our first conclusion on it. But of indirect indications, of reasonable supposition and comparison between what came after the pirate settlements and what had been before, there is much more. By the use of this secondary matter added to the direct evidence, one can fully judge both the limits and the nature of the misfortune that overtook Britain after the central Roman government failed, and before the Roman missionaries, who restored the province to civilization, had landed. We may then arrive at a conclusion and know what that Britain was to which the faith returned with St. Augustine. When we know that, we shall know what Britain continued to be until the catastrophe of the Reformation. The end of section 21.